Welcome to the JIMD podcast, a fortnightly companion to the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease. In every episode, I invite one or more of our wonderful authors to discuss their recent work and tell me some of the stories that got lost to the word count. There are over 100 episodes to listen to, and if you are enjoying them, then why not subscribe, leave a review, or just click like. Before you do that, have a listen to this latest episode on PGM1 isoforms, phenotyping, and gene therapy. Hello there. Now, one of the great privileges of my role at the JMD is that it has brought the wonderful Professor Ava Moreva into my life, and I'm constantly in awe of her incredible knowledge and boundless enthusiasm. So I'm delighted that she's joining me once again for a podcast. Ava, it's been far too long. Wonderful to be here, James, again. I'm honoured. Alongside Ava, I have two other wonderful guests. Ava's protege at the Department of Clinical Genomics at the Mayo Clinic and an expert in the field of CDG, Dr. Sylvia Redenkovic. And from the Division of Medical Genetics at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, we have Professor Kent Lai. Sylvia and Kent, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure. We're back talking about PGM1 CDG following a publication from you and Sylvia, among others, earlier this year. Ava, it's been some time since we recorded our episode on PGM1 CDG. Look, I hate to dumb down your work, but can we have the recap, you know, kind of previously on the podcast? Okay. Uh, PGM1 is um, intriguing CDG because it has been described as uh, glycogen storage disease in the past, actually called glycogen storage disease type 14. It has been rediscovered as a CDG because it affects nucleotide sugar activation and glycan synthesis. And it's one of the most intriguing CDGs because it's a multi-system disease. So it affects almost all part of the body, but it doesn't affect the brain. So that's wonderful. However, this is a disorder where we see sudden cardiac episodes, uh, arrhythmia, even sudden death, cardiomyopathy, and a lot of cardiac complications in 50% of the patients, which is very unique for CDG, in addition to many other symptoms, abnormal coagulation, hormones, myopathy, and a stable but debilitating multisystem disease. There is treatment for patients' galactose supplementation, which is an oral supplement, and this helps with almost all the features of the disease. However, it doesn't affect the cardiac symptoms, unfortunately. That's beautifully explained. And it, it, it seems to me that just when I think I'm starting to get these things, um, Sylvia, you come along and you make it more complicated. So your letter was about isoforms in PGM1. Can you explain that to me? Yes. So we wrote this letter based on a previous publication by a Norwegian group, and they reported that the two isoforms of PGM1 protein, which are encoded by the PGM1 gene, are equally conserved and functionally indispensable. So while PGM isoform 1 is expressed in almost every tissue, PGM isoform 2 is only expressed in the muscle and to a lower extent than isoform 1. So it wasn't really so interesting for pre Previous research. But actually, these two isoforms are included by two different transcripts, and therefore, based on the position of pathogenic variant, either one isoform or both can be affected in the patients. 
And then we went on and we uh, distributed these patients into three different groups based on the isoforms affected. We found actually that the patients that had both isoforms affected had more occurrence of uh, cardiac and muscle presentation. And we actually found it in 95% of patients that belonged in this group. And as a contrast, we only see that in 25% of the patients that have functional isoform 2, for instance. So there seemed to be a correlation between these isoforms and the presentation of the cardiac and muscle involvement in PGM1-CDG. So that's in some ways the holy grail of, of disorders is being able to prognosticate at the point we make the diagnosis. Does that mean with this knowledge we can better predict what's the, the likely clinical course for families when they receive a PGM1 diagnosis? I'm glad that you asked that. We actually have two patients that have not had any muscle or cardiac involvement reported. And they were, I think, three and two years old at the time that their case was reported in the literature. And we actually believe that these patients, based on the pathogenic variants, may develop cardiomyopathy later. So it's a very good, and especially for the clinical context, because the doctors following these patients can have this in mind and make sure to follow the patient closely and check their hearts. And what you can include at the end is that with regards to the heart disease, it's especially important now that we're moving to this evolving area of gene therapy. We know that galactose can rescue most components of the phenotype with the exception of, of the cardiac disease. And the three of you are all authors on a recent paper, um, AAV-based gene therapy prevents and halts the progression of dilated cardiomyopathy in a mouse model of phosphoglucomutase 1 deficiency, or PGM1, which I hope everyone knows by now. I love hearing about animal models for disease. How does the PGM1 mouse recapitulate human disease? Um, yes, it does recapitulate very well, in my opinion, so it just developed dilated cardiomyopathy that was confirmed by echocardiogram. And also we see dilated heart histologically. And maybe we did look at it at ultrastructural level. We also see, you know, this deranged sacromeres and all those things. So we are still trying to study why it is happening. And we think we know a little bit better now than before. We think it has something to do with energy metabolism and uh, also glycosylation of some intermediate filaments. So I think... This all, you know, has been also shown in the heart explant of a patient that Dr. Morafa uh, supplied to us. So I, I think, you know, basically we have a very good uh, correlation between the animal model and the human patients. Is it just the cardiomyopathy you see or do you see the other aspects of the disease? Uh, I mean, depending on how you see it, fortunately or unfortunately, we only knock out the PGM1 in the heart in this model. So it is a cardiac-specific model. So for the mouse, most of the other organs, they do have the uh, mouse PGM1 equivalent. So we don't see other things, which is okay. good, right? But if we see other things, then we are not we are not working on the right model, you know? Yeah, it's incredible how you can, can do that. I, I'm not sure I fully understand it. Um, so you, you made a mouse model where you knock things out and then you put things back again. Is that right? Right. That is in essence what we do, you know? So we... We want to first make the mouse model to make sure this mouse model, as you said, mimic what happens in the patients because it's very important. And then we try to see whether we can put back the, the right gene, we call it gene replacement, and then see whether it can help to 
prevent or reverse the situation. So we did both. Uh, and then we did see some positive results and we published that. So what was the outcome of that study? I know our listeners will be very interested. It didn't turn up in our journal, but we'll let you off there. Okay. So we'll we'll definitely try publishing your journal next time. (laughs) All right, no pressure. Uh, And so we did two experiments. The first one, basically, before we delete the the gene, we put back the the AV, put back the right gene. So when we delete it, and then we can see that it will no longer develop cardiomyopathy. This is more like like a vaccine, right? Before the damage occurred, you already have a backup there so that this is enough to prevent any future problems. So this is something that we can... Consider, but I, I'm not clinical, so I don't know whether we can do it in meaningful in in a patient just to prevent future problems. But the other thing we did is we lock out the gene and put back the right gene in this case and see whether we can stop the progression of the disease. And we did see that as well. We are still looking into whether we can really reverse the disease, but we have to let the animal go further along, make sure that the damage has been more severe, and then we try to put back the gene. So that experiment is still ongoing. Can I say something? You know, I like to talk. (laughs) So two little remarks. One is that the first model, which affected PGM1 knockout for the whole mouse, was not viable and can't actually design this model and heterozygotes did survive. And interestingly, they didn't show clinical symptoms, but they did show abnormal glycosylation published in our journal about three years ago before COVID. So I think that's a huge restriction of a potential model that it seems like genetic mutation, that sort is so impactful that it's not viable. The other remark I wanted to add is that I think that now that we saw that Kent is a magician and he can cure the cardiomyopathy in his heart-specific knockout model, but also can prevent the triggered and tamoxifen-induced gene abnormality consequences with treating his model before the mouse gets the cardiomyopathy, I think Sylvia's work will become very important because if we are able to predict who are the patients who will get cardiomyopathy later, then these patients might get preventive gene therapy instead of waiting to get cardiomyopathy and we would treat them after the fact. And do we think then that ultimately the the approach to treatment is going to be a combination of galacto supplementation and gene therapy? Is that inevitable or will gene therapy do everything in, in the future? So we are actually working on understanding better the cardiac specific mechanism in PGM1 CDG because we really believe that there is something different about the heart. So galactose definitely will be something that the patients will keep taking. And gene therapy is probably going to be available for only a few patients. And therefore, we really want to investigate further what's going on in the heart. And we're developing another model to study this, which is iPSC's 
uh, cardiomyocytes. So we make them from the patient fibroblasts and they have the genetic background of the patient. And therefore, we can see directly in the cardiomyocytes of these patients what is happening. And we are doing this in parallel with the mouse experiment. So we're looking into the metabolites in these hearts. Is something different there? Previously, we have published that there was a depletion of UDP glucose and galactose in PGA1-CDG, which is replenished with galactose treatment, and this is able to restart glycosylation. But we do believe that there is something different going on in the heart and is probably not treated by galactose, and this might be some other metabolic adaptation, like different glucose flux through, for instance, TCA cycle that we want to specifically look at. These are all things that could be targeted with other treatments as well. Therefore, it is possible that we might have several different treatments, hopefully, that then based on the patient and how they're affected, if they already have cardiomyopathy or not, we can therefore propose one or the other. So that's kind of our plan. <laughs> I mean, it sounds exciting. It's obviously always exciting to have, you know, not just a treatment, but different options as well. Gene therapy itself is always very exciting. There's so much to talk about it at the moment that you can't go a day without hearing about another gene therapy in development, although sadly some also moving out of development and, and not progressing. Obviously, for our patients, the reality is that the need is now, not in 10 years' time. What comes next? You've talked about IPSCs. Where's the gene therapy going next, Kent? Is it best to ask you? I think they go back to Dr. Morafa's, you know, because we, we can do a lot in the mice, but eventually we need to go through clinical trials. So that is really our my league. And it has to go back to Dr. Morafa's expertise and, and her team to, to find opportunities to do the trials in patients to make sure it is effective and safe. But I don't think it will take another 10 years. I think we are pretty close, you know. It's just a matter of opportunities to find um, the resources to do the, the trials. But maybe Dr. Morofa can chime in and, and add to this. Thank you, Kent. Yes, so our goal is really to take this amazing result and uh, try to see whether the construct you developed is safe and what is the right dose to treat or prevent cardiomyopathy in humans. And so the next step would be to evaluate this in mice. And in some instances, it's also recommended to evaluate this in monkeys before you go into human trials. So actually, this is a very expensive operation and finding grants to do this step is very difficult. Once we have the safety evaluation, I think there are several patients who are ready to try gene therapy because of the extremely high risk of sudden cardiac death in this disease. One thing, you cannot repeat gene therapy in the same individual because of the extreme adverse reactions when, when you repeat that therapy. So you have to get the right dose because if you underdose, it won't work. If you redose, you can kill the individual. So this is uh, one of the most important parts of the whole gene therapy process. And that's obviously an issue when we don't really know how long gene therapy is going to work for because it's not necessarily going to be lifelong and that's fair to say isn't it or have i misunderstood different gene therapies 
Yeah, I, I think it depends on the target, right? I mean, if the tissue that you want to target is liver, then it is going to be a little bit short life because we have a higher turnover of liver cells, right? And then also because if you try to do it at young age and the, the patient grow and the liver get bigger and then a lot of new cells, they will not have the vectors there because the vectors will not replicate in those cells. But of course, if you go in for the muscles, and in this case, maybe the cardiac muscles, that will probably stay a little bit longer because the muscles have a very slow turnover. And then I think the heart is mostly formed very early on in life. So, I mean, even though they grow in size, but I don't think they grow in the number of cells. Am I correct, Eva? Yes. So we assume that non-mitotic tissues will keep the gene therapy for long. And most of our experience so far with gene therapy in, in Borneros are with disorders which are liver related. But in this case, we might be in luck because of the special targeted organ. Well, that's good news. Uh, my experience is, well, all my experience is based around podcasts and all my, <laughs> most of my podcasts have been around liver-targeted therapies. So I guess we'll get more value for money, which probably means someone will charge more money for it at the end. Fabulous. Um, well, thank you all for your time. If you'd like to read these papers, please click the links in the podcast description and you can find the insights into PGM1 isoforms via the JMD website. And the AAV gene therapy paper is in translation research. Can we say that? Yes. I guess we just did. And if you'd like to hear more from us, please check out the first podcast I did with Ava and that was all about PGM1 CDG or you can find a recent shortcast from her longtime collaborator Dr. Rakia Haltasan that describes the successful heart transplant in a child with PGM1 CDG. Both of these are in our extensive back catalogue. Ava, Sylvia and Kent, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having us. Thank you for inviting us. Bye. And thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>